Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes it's tough to wrap our heads around what it's saying. Sometimes it's tough to relate what it's saying to the world around us and the culture that we live in. But Lord, we're so grateful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change. The truths in your word do not change, even though the culture around us changes. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear what you have for us today, uh, that we would be open-minded to what uh, you are teaching us through your word today, and that you would be given all the glory. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know every generation talks about how much has changed in society since they were young. Every generation talks about how much has changed in society since they were young. But I think we have seen more change in our culture just within the past five to ten years than any other generation before. A New York Post article published over four years ago, so that's already outdated, was entitled, A Massive Silent Revolution Has Changed America. In it, the author notes, we've hardly taken notice of it because it happened in people's minds instead of in the streets, happened in ordinary people instead of in the elites. Compared to just a few years ago, we have a completely different set of ideas about what constitutes acceptable behavior. As Caitlyn Jenner puts it in her new reality show, I'm the new normal. The author then asks the question that no one in our culture even wants to ask anymore. Quote, increasingly we don't want to judge others for anything, even if what they're doing is destructive. But is being non-judgmental the same as granting tacit approval, even support? He follows that with, if you're a baker, you can refuse to cater a gay wedding for any reason you please. You're too busy, you're taking a few days off, you're hungover. But if you say the words, I don't approve of gay marriage, you are not only vilified, you will be bankrupted. The author then closes the article by saying, let's hope that 15 years from now, another cultural revolution is followed and Americans will be able to think whatever they want without fear of condemnation. The author hits the nail right on the head, doesn't he? As he made observations about our culture. But unfortunately, I also don't think he's going to get his wish. Our culture will only veer farther and farther away from biblical values. You've heard me preach about the Bible's stance on marriage, sex, and homosexuality. It's a difficult and it's a sensitive topic. Today we're going to explore another cultural topic that's also difficult and sensitive to deal with, and that's the topic of gender, gender identity, and gender roles. We can all look back on major turning points in our nation's history that sowed the seeds for where we are as a society and how we view gender and gender roles. World War II, the sexual revolution of the 60s, and most recently the 2015 Supreme Court decision. 
Just back in June of this year, the NYC Department of Education stated, quote, that LGBTQ-related subject matters will become mandatory for all city kids so that multiple forms of diversity, including gender and sexual orientation, are recognized, understood, and regarded as indispensable sources of knowledge for rigorous teaching and learning. Mandatory. Back in February of this year, New Jersey became the second state in the nation behind California to require that public schools teach LGBTQ history. So it's important now than, more now than ever, that we understand what the Bible actually teaches on gender, gender identity, and gender roles. As we read through this morning's passage on, uh, on our own in the past, as we've read it in the past, we may have been tempted to throw it out the window as irrelevant and disconnected from our current culture. In fact, sadly, that's what many celebrity Christian music artists and leaders are doing right now. Similar to recent messages, this one will be a little bit longer, but as we work our way through this section, both today and next week, we will see how crucially important it is for today and our understanding on the topic. My goal is to be as sensitive as possible while teaching and explaining these biblical truths as clearly as possible. And this message will serve as a jumping off point for the rest of the messages pertaining to this. So with all that said, our first point this morning is the trend. If you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just use the table of contents or ask a neighbor. I want all of us to see this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul starts off this section by saying, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. I'm not going to spend any time on this today because we've spent so much time on this recently. This verse should actually be the last verse in chapter 10. This should not be the first verse of chapter 11, but that's okay because the way that chapters are broken down, that's not part of scripture. That was a monk back in the Middle Ages who did that. Um, but this verse should actually be the end verse of chapter 10. And it's, it wraps up everything that Paul wrote on the previous topic of setting aside Christian liberty in certain situations if it means supporting fellow Christian spiritual growth instead of harming it. As Paul had been using himself as an example throughout the whole section of how he set aside certain Christian liberties for the sake of winning more people to Christ, he implores the Corinthians to imitate his example in this area, not because he was that great, but because he was confident he was following Jesus' example. Imitate me just as I am imitating Christ. If the Corinthians wanted an example of someone who spent time in Corinth, living within the Corinthian culture, they could follow Paul as he followed the teachings of Christ and lived those out in whatever culture he interacted with. Now Paul turns to the subject at hand. Like any good church leader, he starts things off with some encouragement before he turns to the practical instruction. Verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The, the, the doctrine, the biblical teaching that he had given to them while he was in Corinth. 
According to one biblical scholar, apparently it had been communicated to Paul that beyond all the problems, and we've been working our way through them, beyond all the problems in the Corinthian church, what they had never let go of were the central doctrines to the Christian faith. That's what they never let go of. Those doctrines were their understanding of that Scripture was God's inerrant and all-sufficient Word, their utter sinfulness, their salvation found in Jesus alone, His deity, His substitutionary atonement, and their eternal hope of going to heaven. Those are the basic doctrines that they never let go of. Paul wants to commend the Corinthian believers that even with all the issues of them living their faith out in their culture, their basic salvific doctrinal theology was still intact. He could now build on that. Before we read the next verses, I want to set up the cultural issue that the Corinthian Christians were struggling with in the church. According to biblical scholarship, derived from the context of what Paul is addressing, there was another instance of people using the Corinthian cultural phrase, all things are permissible. We referenced that when we talked about the sexual immorality that was going on in the church. They were using that, fra- that Corinthian cultural phrase, all things are permissible, to cast off biblical teaching and promote something else. In this time period, it was a universal practice for a woman who wanted to convey to the public that she was morally respectable to wear a head covering. That's what happened in this time period. A woman who wanted to convey to the public that she was morally respectable would wear a head covering in basically every public situation scenario. Both Jewish and Gentile culture recognized this. It signaled that you were attached to a man. If you were married to your husband and if you were not married to your father's authority. It signaled that you were not out advertising yourself as wanting sexual advances to be made towards you. Skipping ahead a bit, that's why Paul writes, I'm just going to read these, we'll cover this in the future. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is the one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. I know there's a lot in there. Like I said, we'll cover this in the future. But in the culture, going around with your head uncovered, if you were a woman, signified that you were purposely portraying to the world that you did not care about your sexual morals. Did that have any place in the Corinthian church? No, absolutely not. Paul already spent three entire chapters talking about sexual morality from chapters 5 through 7. The references to a woman uncovering her head as being just like if she had cut all her hair off or shaved it off is connected to a cultural practice that when a husband discovered that his wife had been cheating on him, he could force her to go around with a shaved head. That This publicly declared her shame as an immoral woman. Now stay with me. Stay with me. Before we go too deeply into whether or not women should wear head coverings as a general rule, it can be relevantly connected to our culture today. It can be. I do not want to sound too prudish, but sisters, just as the lack of covering in Paul's day meant that you did not care about your sexual morality, consider that the lack of covering today can portray the exact same thing. 
I'm not saying you mean it to be that way, but it can be very often perceived that way and can trip up your spiritual brothers. Let's throw that out there, okay? Let's just be honest here. I'm also not condemning being in style, but remember that your purpose as a child of God, bought with the blood of Christ, is to be a representative of Jesus to this world, not yourself. We just talked last week about how our purpose in Christ is to live fully for the glory of God, or a couple weeks ago, is to live fully for the glory of God, not ourselves. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere, He comes right out and says it. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. What the removal of head coverings by the women, specifically as it pertained to the church gatherings, also meant was a casting off of God's created gender roles. It meant that in their all things are permissible Christian liberty misunderstanding, they could now consider themselves and promote the understanding that they were equal to the men. Stay with me. As Paul wrote in verse 5, that desire was also to be seen as just as shameful as the shaved head of an adulterous woman. Now before everyone picks up their pitchforks, Put them back down. This is what I'm going to further explain next. So we talked about the trend, what was going on in the Corinthian church. Now we're going to talk about the theology that forms the foundation for everything we're going to talk about when it has to do with gender, gender identity, and gender roles. The foundation for how Paul will instruct here is found in verse 3. Read this with me. I want everybody to see this. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is the theological reiteration of the foundation for gender roles, but in order to fully understand that, we have to see what that foundation is throughout the entire Bible. This will inform a biblical understanding of everything that is going on in our culture today. At the time of the creation of humanity, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Using these verses as our foundation for this discussion is absolutely crucial. What do we see here? We see that God only created two genders. That's what we see here, right? What are they? Male and female. There is no third gender. There is no gender fluidity or a blend of the two. God purposely created two and only two genders, male and female. We'll get to the argument of what if God made me this way. But these verses are the very basic foundation for everything having to do with marriage, sexuality, and gender. You might think this is incredibly closed-minded, but you can't argue with the clear statement made here, can you? Don't start tuning me out. Bear with me to the end. You'll see how this all connects. You'll see how this all is all explained. In terms of sexuality, we see that clearly in these verses as well. We read that God created male and female... 
And in Genesis 2, we discover that God brings them together in marriage. And in chapter 1, verse 28, he tells them to what? Be fruitful and multiply, right? A major part of the blueprint of marriage is the blessing of conceiving and bearing children. Like I've said, in, the, in this broken world, many married couples struggle with that, and there's much pain connected to that. And the Bible promises that there is healing and purpose that can still come from that. My point in this overall discussion, though, that, though is a major part of God's blueprint for marriage, and therefore a sexual relationship, is the purpose of conceiving and bearing children. Once you throw that ultimate purpose out the window, then any kind of marriage, any kind of sexual relationship is possible and permissible. In combination with this, Genesis 2 describes how God's blueprint for marriage is that it must occur, only occur, between one man and one woman. And that a sexual relationship must only occur between a husband and a wife. We read in Genesis 2, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. That is why, so we see here, it's inextricably tied to marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19, and even quotes from these verses verbatim to do so. Paul relates these verses of the culture of his day and writes in Romans 1 that the very first act of defiance towards God after humanity's newfound freedom from him, after they sinned, was to spit on his creation of them in his image and therefore spit on the blueprint for marriage that was inextricably tied to their creation of them in his image. What is the most effective way of doing that if you want to spit on God's blueprint for marriage? By turning God's blueprint for marriage and sexuality on its head, and even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned in lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. This theology also lays the foundation for the gender roles that the Corinthian church was struggling with and what the church continues to struggle with. We see this in these verses in Genesis 1 and 2 that there is no such thing, or that, 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 I'm sorry, that there is a such thing as created roles for each gender. What I want to be crystal clear about, though, is that I'm not talking about a difference in value. I am not talking about that at all such as one gender being superior to or inferior to the other. I am talking about different roles that are equal in value. The first has to do with subordination. Again, before you pick up your pitchforks, allow me to explain what I mean here. Paul will build on this in verse 3 of our passage today, but to understand this, we need to take verse 3 a bit in reverse. There is a clear, natural sequence of subordination here. Not in being, in authority. At the end of verse 3, what does Paul note? Paul notes that God is the head of Christ. That's what he writes, right? God is the head of Christ. That is huge 
for this discussion because that clearly shows that this isn't a matter of superiority versus inferiority and in this time period breathed value into women. This has to do with submitting to authority, not degrading nor usurping, but out of a mutual love for God as even the members of the Trinity of the Godhead do with each other. You see that? None of the members of the Trinity degrade each other, nor try to usurp each other, but out of perfect communion and love, they do submit to each other's authority. This is where the discussion must always start, no matter what the topic is. It must always start with God. In John 6, 38, Jesus states, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will, to do the will of God who sent me, God the Father. Again, this is not downgrading Jesus' being and nature as also being God and the second person of the Trinity, but it does establish a system and an order of authority. Likewise, the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. Jesus says, when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. He says, when the Father sends the Holy Spirit. But he also says, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the Advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son's authority. The members of the Trinity of the Godhead are all equal in being and nature. They're all equal in being and nature. But they have different roles and how they relate to each other, and how they relate to humanity. That gives us, what that does now, that gives us the foundation to best understand the biblical teaching on gender roles. Next in the sequence is that Christ is the authority over the man. We understand that, again, in the order of things, man was created first. Very simple. That's what we read. Man was created first. Both man and woman were created in the image of God, but man was created first. There is a responsibility connected with this, and that is this, that the man is the representative of humanity before God. In speaking about gender roles, Paul writes to Timothy, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. As such, even though... Eve was the first to technically sin and eat of the forbidden fruit. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world because man was the representative of humanity before God. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Man was created first, and therefore it's man who represents humanity before God, and man who directly submits himself to the authority of Christ. That is seen generally in humanity before God, and extends to the family order of authority, and the church order of authority. The husband and father of a family, as the man, is the representative of that family before God, and he will be held responsible for the spiritual condition of his family. Believe me, this is not a coveted position. It's not the wife and mother's job, ideally. Men, I'm going to be honest with you. If you're shirking that responsibility, you better find it quick 
and do something about it since you're going to be held responsible for it anyways. So you better go find it. This model also serves as a system of authority in the church. Just as Christ is the head of the man, he's also the head of the church. If the man is the representative of humanity before God, the representative of his family before God, then it only makes biblical sense for the man to be the representative of the church before God. As such, while there is biblical evidence for women being deacons in the church, there is none for women being elders and therefore pastors. In fact, every reference to elders in the New Testament is directed at men. Now I understand in this world that in some places there are no qualifying men to lead a church and the women have to pick up some of the slack. But where it is possible in any way for spiritually qualified men to lead as elders and pastors, that's the way it biblically should be. Why? And why is it specifically pertains to the context of this passage. Because just as God is the God of order, and there is an order of authority even within the Trinity, being made in God's image also means reflecting this order of authority. See, the Bible is not chauvinistic nor misogynistic. As the Trinity embodies a system of order and authority, the ones made in His image must also reflect a system of order of authority. Man was simply made first in the order of creation and therefore is the representative of humanity submitting under the authority of Christ. In turn, since woman was made second in order, she submits to the representative of humanity, the man who is under the authority of Christ. As we just talked about, this is seen in the biblical church system of authority where there is a body of elders of which are teaching elders or pastors included who are men submitting directly under the authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. This also pertains to the family. Knowing all of this, therefore, it should come as no surprise to us then that when Paul gives practical family instruction, he simply reiterates this system of order in the family. And he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For, this leaves a bad taste in people's mouths, but we've seen that there is a system of order here. Paul is just reiterating what he's already said. For the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. This is simply a reiteration of everything we've been talking about. The problem is that it's very difficult to see things that way. In fact, it's part of the curse that God put on womankind after the first sin, that she would be constantly trying to usurp this established system of authority. Let me ask everyone here something. If we must understand, obey, and live out the blueprint for marriage and sexuality that was established when we were made in the image of God, must we also not understand, obey, and live out this established system of order? We're going to get more into this topic next week, the responsibilities of both men and women in this established system of order. But for now, I wanted to lay the basic foundation for the biblical origin of the existence of biblical gender roles, both in the family and in the church. The world, 
Don't look at the world. The world's just going to continue to do what it wants to do. So we talked about the trend that was going on in the Corinthian church. We talked about that basic foundation of gender theology. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the tie-in, how it all relates to the culture that we're all living in. That last statement about the world continuing to do what it wants to do is what brings us to our last point. We've clearly seen how the Bible, time and time again, establishes specific truths. We've seen how God's blueprint for marriage and sexuality goes hand in hand with our creation being in the image of God. You know what this means? That God does not create anyone to be a certain gender biologically with the intention of that person identifying with any other gender other than the biological one he or she was created with. How can I say that? Because God says it. We already looked at that at the point of creation, God created two genders, male and female, inextricably tied with their own inherent characteristics and purpose. Since that's the case, and one of those is procreation, God would not create a person to be biologically male, for instance, with the characteristics, representation, identity, and purpose of a man in a sexual relationship, and also create him with a separate gender with its different characteristics, identity, purpose, and purpose of a woman in a sexual relationship. That makes no theological nor biblical sense. I know that many people have confusion tied with this and pain associated with the confusion or questioning with this. And I hope that you see that it doesn't have to be that way. You can be freed and you can be healed from that. One may think they're born homosexual, bisexual, transgender, or think they have to question what gender or orientation they are. But that's not from God nor the way he intended humanity to be. Now what that could be is in connection with the groaning of creation put under a curse, yearning to be redeemed. Paul writes, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In that case, embracing and exploring that would be embracing and and exploring the effects of the curse rebellion, and sin. Celebrating that would be celebrating the effects of the curse, rebellion, and sin. Believers in Jesus have the hope of knowing that they've been redeemed from the curse on creation, not beholden to it, nor give in to it. To say, I'm just being who I was born to be, and I'm just being who I am, does not agree with, I identify with Christ, and God is making me more and more into the likeness of Jesus. The two are incongruent. The same pertains to men not stepping up into the role that God created them to be as the representative of the spiritual authority of their families and church. And the same pertains to women desiring the same representative of, of authority as God created men to have. In fact, This is all of our hope, no matter what feelings or desires we have that we know are sin. This is all of our hope, 
He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's all of our hope. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. That's the hope that we're given as we try to make sense of this quickly changing culture, as we engage in conversations with people who don't agree with this or embrace a lifestyle contradictory to this. We can't judge them because our only hope has nothing to do with us and only to do with God's grace. So who are we to judge them? We can't show hatred or disdain towards them because that's not the way that God sees us. Thank God. We must stick unwaveringly to the truth of God's word and portray Jesus' love towards everyone we meet, regardless of what they think, do, or say. Faith in Jesus must come first before any life change. Faith in Jesus must come first. You will not change anyone's mind specifically based on railing against any cultural depravity. You're not going to do it. No one will see any reason to change if they do not first have Jesus and the Holy Spirit working that change in them. That's what we have to focus on. We can't focus on railing against the cultural depravity. We must focus on bringing the gospel of Jesus to our culture. Bringing the gospel of Jesus to each and every person we meet. And then and only then will they see any reason to change. That is how we interact with a world whose standards more and more quickly are departing from biblical values. That's how we interact with this world. Not to decry, shake our fists at them, or scratch our heads about it. What we do is we bring the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in love to everyone we come in contact with, no matter what the culture is like. Even when the culture changes 20 years down the road, we still bring this simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it even speaks to something that's very confusing for a lot of people in our culture. And Lord, I hope that it helped to bolster believers in Jesus to know what your word teaches about these things in their conversations with others. Lord, I thank you that everything is very simple with you. It all comes back to you. It always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to salvation found only in Him. So Lord, I pray that we would be bolstered in that. That as we go out into this world and we interact with all kinds of different people in our workplaces, in our families, our neighbors, I pray that we would stick to the simple truth of the gospel message of salvation found in you. That that is, all, that is what we would stick to. And Lord, I pray that we would revel and celebrate the grace that you have upon us. Lord, we thank you that you chose us 
to, to give your salvation and forgiveness and redemption to. And we give you all the praise and glory for it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.